Welcome to the second series of Ethics for Advisors. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and Editor of Professional Planner. In this latest series, we have engaged ethics experts and practitioners to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives with a focus on how advisors and practice owners are implementing ethical practices in their businesses. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a combination of factors including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's Code of Ethics. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. I'm joined today by Paul Moran, advisor and practice owner with Moran Partners Financial Planning in Melbourne in Victoria, and Tracy Wilcox, associate professor, academic director, postgraduate, UNSW Business School. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Matt. Afternoon, Matt. Great to have you both here and um, really looking forward to this conversation, you know, in our planning conversation, um, I couldn't stop you both from talking. So it was, uh, you know, I think um, I think we're going to have a, a fascinating conversation. I, I'm going to start with you, Paul. I mean, you're probably known to a few of our readers and, and you've been submitting some columns recently based on your um, PhD you did recently and, and want to hear a little bit about about that. But just give me a bit of a top level, Paul, on your journey and um, and a little bit about your business and, and your thoughts on on your ethics practice. Sure. Well, look, I guess I started back in the, in the, in the early to mid-90s, back in a time where there was commissions everywhere. That was all you got paid by in a bank. So tiered commissions and volume bonus and things like that. I left that in, in the late 90s and started my own practice. I went for a very short time to an industry fund, which I didn't like very much, and then went um, over my own practice in, 2000, in 2000, late 2000. So I've been, uh, been self-licensed for about eight years now. Um, moved away from a licensee and became self-licensed because we wanted the freedom to do what we wanted to do without kind of big brother looking over the top of what we do. Suited us, you know, so we were happy with that. Um, we've got a pretty mature business. Uh, we've got three advisors. I'm the principal. Um, you know, we look after probably about just a scary over $200 million in the practice and um, our emphasis is probably on retirement, pre-retirement retirement planning, but it's a generalist practice and um, we treat our whole of family. We're not, we're, I don't use the term family office because I don't think that's relevant for us, but we use a whole of family approach. So if the parents are clients and the kids need help, we help the kids. If the kids are clients, the parents need help, we help the parents. It's, you know, all part of what we what we provide. I wish we had uh, a scenario we had in one of the other episodes was about uh, removing yourself from situations where some of the outcomes to you're presenting to the the parent might, you know, impact that of the of the child and others. Um, but do, do you um, approach that in your everyday practice? Yeah, look, we we'd say we have a primary client. Yeah, you know, so the primary client's when he pays us the fee. Yeah. Um, uh, and if they want us to help their kids, uh, one, like we had this ridiculous service where we help kids move out of home, parents can't get the kids out of the house. Mm. And so the, we set, the kids gets in and here we set the right act and we tell them what they should be doing and growing up and leave their parents alone and, you know, point the finger a few times and, and set up on how to, how to become an adult financially. Mm. And, uh, and they start saving and they move out of home and they move on and that's, that's what we try and do. And that's, uh, parents think we're great for that because they get their house back, but, uh, 
Yeah, brilliant. Well, I'll come and see you in uh, about um, 10 or 12 years' time. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll come back to you on uh, the behavioural finance stuff and what sure. you've learned um, through the research study you've recently done. But, Tracy, yeah, um, look, uh, really interested. You, you've done been doing some really interesting things um, there at Uni University of uh, New South Wales Business School. Can you talk me through some of the, the, the projects you're working on? Sure. So we, we've just wrapped up a project where we've redesigned our flagship Bachelor of Commerce program to bring mm. ethics and corporate responsibility and sustainability into the center. So that really means that we get students thinking about business in terms of its purpose, you know, what, what is it here for? And also thinking about stakeholders rather than, for example, a, a more traditional economics-based approach. So that's um, that's been a really interesting project. Mm. Um I'm also working on, on some uh, teaching in data and ethics, so uh, teaching ethics to uh, data scientists and, and analysts, and that's been really interesting, getting them to think about the data supply chain, so think about how data is collected, manipulated, used, um, and, and also to get them to think about data stakeholders in that supply chain. That, that's, there's been some really interesting questions about that, particularly as we think about uh, AI and machine learning and how that's becoming more and more ubiquitous when we have certain decisions being made. So, so that's another area. And then um, the third thing I've been working on with a colleague who's an actuary is looking at virtual ethics in finance. And the idea of the finance sector and, and what's what's it here for? What's its ultimate purpose? Um, and we're really interested in the idea that the end game for all of us is, is to live in flourishing societies. Um, and we know that we flourish in community. Um, and so we're kind of taking apart that kind of idea of self-interested, hyper-competitive, hmm. uh, rational actor. And... Um, and looking at how we actually flourish in communities. And I think the, the COVID pandemic's really shown that what's really important for all of us is, you know, the, the, kind, the kinds of things that help us to flourish and flourish in communities. So, so they're, they're sort of the areas that I've been looking at. Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if it's just because I'm super aware of it at the moment, but a lot of conversations I'm having within the advice segment do end up talking about community and um, the importance of, of community and, 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 and um, kind of leveraging the community in a way where, you know, the, the greater good obviously um, leads to, um, you know, a better and healthier um, profession as well. And, and, and I feel like that's, you know, in, in, in and around every single conversation I'm having at the moment. So I think the advice industry is cognizant of that. What to push that further within advice specifically? What can what can what should advisors and the advice community be thinking? Well, I mean, I think if you think about the whole finance sector, the finance advice sector, it is about interlocking communities. Mm. Um, so that they're your clients, and, and your clients are part of a community, and you're in a community with those clients. Yeah. But also in the industry itself, you have a professional community, and. And as um, that profession evolves, um, and it's been doing a lot of that lately, then that community grows. And, and uh, you know, really uh, the ideal situation is where you get a coalescence between hmm. um, what, the, what your client communities value and uh, what society values and hmm. what the financial advice profession community values. And, and, and I think that's, you know, we know that we've got flourishing when there is that coalescence where, where all of those different communities um, I feel that they're valuing the same things and, and that they're all flourishing in their own ways. Yeah. Um, I, think, um, I think it's a really interesting point to talk about. Yeah. I, I feel sometimes that the professional community is lacking 
Um, we're, I think we're a few years away from having a real professional community and advice. We're, we tend to be top-down driven. So we're driven by, behaviourally by the regulator or by some of our peak bodies um, and, and without, without that kind of general, genuine professional collegiate approach to what we should be doing. Uh, I'm hoping in the next few years that, that, that that's what develops. We, we start to get more bottom-up um, a development of what, what our profession should look like. And I think we can then help to inform the broader community of what the profession should look like. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's missing a bit at the moment. Yeah, definitely because of in the um, in the discussions we've had previously, Paul, we've kind of talked about how compliance and regulation seems to be driving a lot of um, obviously you know the the actions of of advisors, where surely some of those actions should be driven um, by other things, not just what the the law is and what regulators expect. Um, yeah. How do you think? Can we, we, you know, the, the industry can kind of move to, um, you know, a, a framework where actually it's been driven by some of its, some principles rather than, you know, what essentially is to keep bad apples from being bad apples, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean you know, I've written about self-regulation quite a bit mm. over the past and and that's my, my thing. I like to push that. Mm. I think, you know, it, I have a strong view that regulators prefer not to regulate, but they're forced to regulate when when the industry or profession doesn't establish its own standards. Um, and so we had for CEOs to introduce their standards and, and effectively ASIC through Corp's law has set their standards. We, we haven't really um, been good enough at this point at setting our own our own standards of operation, you know, our own safe harbours. You know, it's you know, in other professions like the medical profession, you know, the 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 sort of um, the uh, you know, the medical association, AMA, will set guidelines, you know, and as long as I'm following the guidelines, I've got a safe harbour. I've followed those guidelines of practical operation, not not rules and regulations, but practical operation. I've followed those rules of practical operation to, to achieve an outcome. I have a safe harbour, you know, and um, the courts will accept that, the regulators will accept that, but we don't have that yet. And so the courts take the regulatory view, um, you know, FASIA's taking its own view, which the courts haven't really tested yet. So I think we need to move strongly forward towards more self-regulation, but it's going to take some time. You know, I totally accept that. And I, I might just jump in on that too, Paul, Matt, because I, I think with a profession, when you think about the medical profession, for example, they have the capacity to sanction the people who don't follow those guidelines. So as well as self-regulation, you also need the capacity to say, no, you're not worthy of being a doctor, you're not worthy of being a surgeon, um, we're going to actually take your registration away from you. And I think I think that's an important part of being a profession as, as well. Um, that and the client-centredness, um, you know, so I think those two, those two things um, are, are what you need in a good self-regulating system. Yep, correct, 100%. Um, there are still agency issues out there that exist and, um, you know, and, and given the opportunity probably would proliferate though. So, you know, it's a challenging environment for policymakers and, and regulators. I mean, what do you, we, we can't just kind of, um, strip away some of the the rules and regulations and kind of hope hope things will work out. What do you suggest there, Paul? Oh, look, I, about six years ago, I did a twelve thousand word you know, um, submission to the Financial Services Commission, not to admission to the uh, uh, Senate Standard Committee on Financial Services around a two tiered approach to regulation. You know, um, I, I, was, I have a really 
strong view that there shouldn't be a homogenous group called financial advisors. There should be two groups. One that has a higher standard, one that is prepared to meet a higher standard that requires less regulation, and one that's not prepared to meet that standard. So, so because I think it's harder and harder to meet that generic standard we've got at the moment. You know, the degree requirements, everything else, the profession is hard. It's hard to get people in that way. And there's no way of bringing people into the lower standard to get started and see, let them progress up to, to the higher standard. So if we had um, two, a two-level system, one that says if I, if, I, if I can prove that I don't have an agency issue, if I don't have any, um, I can prove I'm, I'm not biased, I can prove I'm charging explicit fees to clients and I understand I'm a meaning like regulatory need, then I should have standard one. And if I don't want to do that, if I want to drive people into a particular product and have a product focus, that's standard two. And I can be identified different, differentially, different names, whatever you want to call it. I nominally said the word difference between financial planner and financial advisor might do that, probably wouldn't work. But, but some different level, some standard that said I'm a higher level, I've reached a higher standard. And if I reach that higher standard, I don't have to be regulated as vigorously as a lower standard person. It's kind of hard to, hard to judge that, though, because, you know, I mean, there's the way in which you're paid and whether you have conflicts or not, so they're probably easier. But then there are other people might be unaware of some of, you know, you've talked about um, biases in the past, but, the, you know, there could be, you know, uh, less less a lot less obvious or, obvious or evident things, particularly if you're self-assessing, you not, might not be able to categorize yourself adequately in that way. Yeah, I don't necessarily mean self-assessing. I think there needs to be some assessment process. Yeah. Um, for example, we have a, we had the, the advisor exam, which which, you know, which no one likes. Mm. You know, let's perfectly honest. No one thinks it's a great thing. It could have been a lot better. And, and as a starting point, it could have been used as as the first point. We might have panels, small panels that interview people, um, look under the bonnet of practices. You know, that's the sort of thing that a self regulated body would do. Hmm. To, to assess the competence of the person to take a higher standard. Where do you think we are, Tracy, in that um, process? Do you think that's m- maybe we're on a first step to many to to get there, or uh, or are we heading in the wrong in a different direction? I mean, I, I think it is a first step, and if you think about you, you mentioned earlier, you know, a couple of years ago when when all of this first came came out, and there was a lot of uncertainty in the industry. I think people have become a, a, a lot more comfortable and familiar with it. But if you think about the standards, it's, it, it, a lot of it is really just about putting the client first and recognising that, that you're in a power relationship with the client where you have more information, more knowledge and more power. And so there's some responsibilities that come with that power. But as um, as the industry starts to um, to embrace those responsibilities mm. and, 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 you know, we're... we're Free and informed consent and, and acting in best interest of the client is 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 kind of in the DNA of that higher level that higher level that you're talking about, Paul. Mm. I, you know that that's when I think you can start to have those conversations. Um, you know, I, I, when you're talking about the two level tiers, I was thinking about the aircraft engineers, and you, you know, you've got your li- your Lamies and your Amies, your licensed aircraft mechanical engineers and your unlicensed ones, and. and and, you know, the, the licensed ones have a lot more responsibility, a lot more power, and at the end of the day when we get in that aircraft, we're really comfortable with all those rules and regulations because they're protecting us hmm. because we don't have, we don't have um, access to all of the information. We don't have access to all the knowledge. And, and I guess, you know, when you think about your clients, they don't have access to all that information. They don't have access to all that knowledge. And so thinking about protecting them in the same way that a, that a licensed aircraft engineer would protect yeah. 
Project passengers in a plane. Hmm. Yeah. That's a great analogy. I, I, I might be wrong in in um, my interpretation of this, but I feel like um, <clears throat> the government and or Treasury, you know, looked at the industry's application to self-regulate and said, well, no, you guys aren't ready. I think, um, if I can jump in, I, I think part of the problem is we've got a, a number of um, peak bodies. We're, we don't have a peak body. I, I say certainly the FPA has the, has the numbers, but they're not, they're not the only peak body and there's conflict and I don't think peak bodies necessarily are the organisation to be the to be the leaders. I, I think we need to ground up. We almost need an election, you know, you know elect a, elect a body, elect a committee to from within, you know, amongst all advisors to select mm-hmm. who who becomes these this head group that that filters down, and we have elections underneath that. So we have this kind of um, uh, whole structure built. Um, you know, in the same way, that I'll use the medical analogy, there's a president, Victorian president of the AMA, there's a federal president of the AMA, there's a Victorian committee of AFA, of, of AMA. they've got subcommittees that cover different specialist areas. Uh, now, I, we haven't got 50,000 people who are financial advisors now, um, less than we did before, but to me that's a starting point. Hmm. You, you follow that model that we have an elected group of people who, who come for election on a regular basis every three years and they can be kicked out and kicked in and... Um, if you want to make a case, you make a case, and, and you you, know, you work that way. And I think that's you know, I think the problem was that the peak bodies have all been tainted by their members at different times. Hmm. And so it's a challenge. Do you think you know because we're talking about ethics? Do you think the code of ethics, the way in which it was conceived, somehow set the industry back because it wasn't conceived from within the industry, you know, or from an elected body? But does that matter? I, I don't think so. I mean, I look at this. I look at the standards. And I look at the 12 standards on the first line, the standard one-line view, and there's zero argument with any of it. Mm-hmm. But you look under that bonnet, and there's a whole lot of like, things that are supposed to happen. I've, in fact, got to, I've got to prove the 12 standards every time I give advice. Um, so I have no problem with the standards being there. Hmm. But It's just the, your obligation to prove yeah, it. Yeah, I've, I've got to prove it well down the line. So that, that one line, standard one, act in accordance with all applicable laws, okay, Hello, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm not going to act in accordance with the law. Of, of course I am. But then I go further down the line, I've got to prove over and over again I've done it. You know, you know, stances, consider the effects of the advice you provided. Of course I do that. Hmm. But how do I prove it? <laughs> you know, and the way it gets proven is, oh, you're going to show six different hmm. um, alternative strategies and, and, and justify why the one you're recommending is best. Okay, 10 hours work. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's, that's what I mean. You're it's, nodding there, Tracy. I mean, it, is, it, is it okay for at this stage um, for regulators and policymakers to expect um, advisors to have to prove, um, you know, their adherence to the law until we get to a point where it's it's implicitly trusted? Well, I, I think if you've got an industry in trouble or a profession in trouble, hmm. then in the first instance you do need to ask or evidence to demonstrate that those standards are being followed. Um, but there has to be a point where that industry or that profession is able, you know, embraces the spirit and the letter of those standards and says, okay, it, it, this is built into our practices. Um, you know, many years ago I used to work in quality assurance and you didn't have to have a 100% sample of 100% of what you're doing in order to prove that your process 
was working as it should and bringing the quality that it should be. And and I, th I think that's probably where we'll end up with, with these standards um, and it's a journey um, because, as you say, the devil is in the detail and why is it six different and, and why isn't it five or seven? But, but those kind of questions need to be debated out and, and I suspect in a few years' time uh, when we have even more experience working to the standards that, that they will be and that there, there will be, um, you know, less explicit um you know rules about what you can, what you need mm. to do and, and and much more about the spirit of the law but i, I think it has to start at that point so yeah. it, it forms an education piece within the profession you might have to hang on a few few more years, Paul, um, before uh, the, the, those obligations to report every every single thing you do um, begin uh, to let up. I'm not sure. I'm getting old, mate. That's the trouble. So. <laughs> We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenarios to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions relevant to the episode. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IWF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. So the rules have changed regarding fee disclosure statements, where I understand it that you have to project forward fees and services and switch them off if you can't get a new statement signed by 90 days, I believe. So there's already a bit of uncertainty around the rules um, with this one here. A reasonable chunk of my client base is overseas. I can go many months without having contact and intermittent contact outside of our regular reviews are quite rare. What if I can't get in contact with a client and I know they are really in need of advice because they're in the middle of something complex? What if I know um, I would be of serious disservice to the client and put them into financial jeopardy if I switch off fees and stop, and stop tending to the account? Would I just have to switch them off and forego what could be an essential and material advice? What do you think? Paul, I'll start with you um, as the practitioner on this one. I guess this is the confusion between an annual engagement and an ongoing fee agreement. Hmm. The difference is in timing, which, which uh, as far as I understand, an annual engagement, which we operate in our practice, is a hard stop. So if the 12-month period is up and the client hasn't re-engaged for a further period of time, the fees have to be turned off. Uh, an ongoing fee arrangement, there's a lot more flexibility up to, up to five months afterwards hmm. where you have to turn the fees off if they haven't re-engaged. But either way, um, I think there's a couple of elements in here. No, number one, turning the fees off, doesn't necessarily mean I have to stop servicing the client. Hmm. And if they are good clients and, and the fees have to get turned off, I, I would be think quite sure the clients would reimburse for that period of time um, you know, if, they, if, it's, if it's necessary. So while it's not practical, I totally get that, um, I think we're moving away from the idea that an annual review equals where the fee agreement signed. Well, we try and do that, but it's not always practical. Certainly now, unless the clients are in the middle of the Congo, you know, there's a lot of electronic signature systems that are around HelloSign or, or a DocuSign or Adobe Sign that the clients can still sign the annual agreement um, with or without a review, but as long as they understand I'm signing an agreement for a further 12 months or however long that happens to be. So I don't think it's a stop, but I would say that there's no need to stop the service if your expectation is you're still their advisor. Yeah. I mean, a bit with this one, I, I feel like there's just a little bit of, 
um, uncertainty around the system perhaps that we've moved from and then we're moving to. So maybe that is at the centre of it. But I but I think there's also a little bit here about, you know, this, this kind of obligation to client and, and where that begins and ends um, relating to the fees, which I, th- I think is still quite interesting, which I believe you, you kind of touched on a bit there. Tracy, do you have any thoughts on this one? I mean, I, I guess the way I see it is, is that it, it, the choice is it between shutting them out and and no longer advising them uh, and ending all of that sign-up. If you think about acting in the best interests of your client, then mm. by all means, you uh, you know you, you should be thinking about about looking after their interests. And yeah, as Paul as Paul says, um, it, for someone to go you know months and months and months and months and months and, ne- and never reply to anything. Um, nowadays would be would be quite unusual unless they were in specific circumstances. And if mm. they were in specific circumstances, I'm sure you would have a case. You'd probably send out a search party if someone didn't contact you for months and months. Yeah, yes, I'm, I'm just not <laughs> sure how how often that 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 sort of scenario would happen. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's also. Um, you know, the, again, the, ch- the, ch- the challenge is that is that you get clients who, who some years have a lot of need, and other years have less of need, and, and that averages out over time. And, and the kind of expectation is, I, I give you the same service every single year for the same fee, and so in our practice, that just doesn't happen. You mm-hmm. know, we'll see someone ten times in three months um, for the same fee as once in once in twelve months, because that's just the nature of how it rolls. Uh, but but I think as far as keeping them on board, if they're if they're a valuable client, you know, unless you wanted to get rid of them as a client and say there's no fee, I'm turning you off. Um, if, if you think you still want to be their advisor, then I think there's no problem with saying, look, I've got to wear it a month or two and I'll get it back. I'll catch it back up. I'll increase next year's fee to make up for the couple of months I've lost. Yeah, and so I'm I'm actually looking forward to your input then on the third scenario, which I think yeah. kind of relates a little bit to what you're saying there. Okay, scenario two. Until recently, I was employed by a financial advice business licensed by an institution. We had a very open APL as well as a series of model portfolios created with a mix of internal and external research inputs. There was enough choice um, available. I don't believe that the institution push, pushed advisors to favour its products over over others. Um, but the institution's own platform was always positioned as the primary platform, even though it wasn't the most competitive in the market on price and function- functionality. It did stack up in many ways, though, and was the path of least resistance for practices like ours to use as a primary platform. Um, it also provided a range of choice and access um, to everything I needed. Um, was I doing my clients a disservice by choosing the institution's platform because it was n- because it was easier from a compliance and an admin perspective, even though it might not have been the best for every single client? Um, yeah, look, this is an interesting one. I-, I might ask you again, Paul, to kick off, please. It is an interesting one. I think it's a very a very interesting one. That's something I think most advisors face. Even if not with a large licensee, mm. um, you know mm. most practices would have their preferred platform. Mm. Um, practically in a business, it makes sense to stick to one or maybe two platforms, and and you know not there'll always be something cheaper. Um, there'll always be something a bit different, um, but but practically in a, in, a, in a in a business sense, in a commercial sense, it's impossible to keep chopping and changing between platforms all the time. Because are you really saying that? If there's a better platform, I then am obliged to move all of my clients and incur a fee for them, uh, like uh, an, like a, an advice fee and a, and a transaction fee to move them to this better platform, or do I wait till the platform I'm with maybe makes some adjustments and keeps up competitively with all the people mm. they want? 
it is a it is a, a you know it is a problem honestly that's very hard to overcome that if you've got a platform that does um, work supposed to do and is is competitively priced hmm. it doesn't have to be the cheapest I hate this three letters EST the best the cheapest the fastest all that sort of stuff is it's only relative it's only a time time thing before someone else does something different and better so if the, the platform you're using is 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 fee competitive hmm. um, uh, and does what you want it to do and it's it's easier for you to use personally I don't have a big problem with it yeah, and I think um, a lot of institutions. I mean, that's seemingly, seemingly, you know, now in the post um, product distribution days, that that's where they do make a bit of margin. I think, um, you know, on um, on on their on the platforms and their expectation that advisors perhaps would would use their their primary platform as their preferred platform. Um, Tracy, interested in your thoughts on this one. I guess from an ethics perspective, you know, I, I come at this from a, a slightly yep. different angle. Um, That's what we're hoping. So, <laughs> so in, in thinking about, about that platform, it, you know, we, we hear that it wasn't the most competitive in the market on price. That's one thing. But also on functionality. Hmm. So uh, we don't, with any ethical dilemma like this, you have to really look at the specifics of the situation. So what exact, what exact functionality was it not competitive on? Um, and, and all that we hear in this particular scenario was it's the path of least resistance for practices like ours. It gives me as an advisor access to everything I needed. So uh, it certainly has many benefits for the advisor. But the idea with ethics is, it, and the idea with professional ethics is you're thinking about not just your own interests but the interests of the client. So um, it may be easier from a compliance and admin perspective. It may be um, the path of least resistance. But you have to think about, at least think through, what's the impact on our clients of, of actually sticking with this platform? And it, it may well be that, as Paul says, you can't chop and change platforms all the time for different clients. That's not feasible. But what you can do is make it really clear to your clients why you've chosen this platform and the benefits and risks to the client for that. And that would then be um, acting in a way, you know, that would be acting in compliance with the professional standards. So... Hmm. Um, but you have more power than them, and I think that's one of the things. We always take the perspective of the person with the least power in a relationship. So um, the, the client has doesn't have the knowledge of the various platforms. If you give them that knowledge and say, look, in our practice, we use this platform, uh, and here's, here are some other platforms that you might hear of, but here's the reasons why we use it. Are you okay with that? Then I, I, then I think that's fine, but, but to, to not actually bring the client in on that conversation and to give them that kind of that kind of access to that information is a problem. Um, and, and certainly in ethics, it, it's not just about what works really well for you, but it's what works really well for your stakeholders um, you know, and your primary stakeholders. Well. Do you have a... Can I jump in there a little bit yeah, there? please. What if... Can I throw something into this scenario? What if the cost of service was higher with a different platform? As the choice was platform A... At, I'll use a number, 50 basis points, or platform B at 40 basis points, but it costs me an extra 20 basis points to service it. So my advice fee will be higher with a lower cost platform. Yeah, so, so I mean, that's part of the decision making. So, you know, but, but what you're doing is that, that you're being really explicit about that decision making and really open about that decision making. So, you know, it may be that that increased functionality comes with a greatly increased cost and that cost uh, has to be passed on to the client and the client, but the client has the option of saying, 
Well, you know, that, that increased functionality is very valuable to me for reasons X, Y, and Z, the complex yeah. financial situation. Um, and so therefore I'm happy to pay X percent extra costs. It, so yeah. it's about these open and honest and, and transparent um, conversation yeah. with clients so that we're part of that decision. Yeah, look, really interesting conundrum there. So thank you for that and probably a common one as well. So um, look, the third and final one, um, I have some clients that are on the older side and now have a very simple needs. Some of these clients have a combination of annuity and fixed income style investments and uh, with enough equity and cash to live comfortably on, uh, lucky them. Reasonably um, simple and fairly um, straightforward situations, nothing from a financial um, perspective to keep them up at night. To date, I've been um, um, happy to have an annual um, to twice yearly check-in to continue to retain these clients um, within my client base. We've enjoyed these interactions and there's been no complaint from them about paying annual fees for services I've been, um, I've been providing. In most cases, over many years and during times when circumstances were more complex. Um, recently, I've been thinking perhaps it's not fair for me to continue to charge an advice fee when the work is minimal, but our practice doesn't really have a precedence for switching clients' fee, um, advice fees on and off as the complexity of clients' situations ebb and flow. Describing my benefit to these clients from a compliance perspective isn't an issue because we have a long history of engagement, but it's more from an ethical perspective I'm beginning to think I should be thinking about stopping payment um, to a number of um, from a number of clients, although I admit I'm reluctant because it would impact my business. Um, you you almost uh, alluded to this one a little bit before, Paul. Um, what what are your thoughts? Look, I, I many many years ago, more than twenty years ago, I did a whole bunch of uh, seminars with a guy called Michael Longhurst, who'd written a book called Retirement Planning for Beginners, um, based on his psychology thesis that he'd done around identifying what led to a successful retirement. Now, uh, he, he judged successful retirement as someone who was not showing clinical signs of depression, stress or anxiety. Okay, that was his definition, which I think is a great definition of success in retirement. And I know um, our business model is chaos to calm. Um, if, if I can indulge for just a few seconds, but m many years ago I was, a, I was an ambulance paramedic back in the 80s and before I got into finance and the thing that dawned on me after a few years was no matter what I turned up to, no matter what kind of horrible situation I was in, when you walked in in the uniform, people would always say, it's okay, now the ambulance is here. Now, now I'm not going to, I couldn't, you know, bring someone from back to the dead, but but what they were saying was I'm, I've calmed down now, someone else is going to take responsibility. And and that chaos to calm is what I've modelled our practice on. So, so now that is about giving people peace of mind um, to know that I'm here if you need me. And I think that's what these older clients need, that they become less cognitive, cognitively capable and they need someone who understands them and who's involved in their family and understands their background, number one, even to identify when they're becoming, uh, decisions becoming more difficult. And I think that justifies a fee. Um, the idea that I charge just as it's needed means I wouldn't be charging them a fee and therefore they'd be, they'd be cast aside. Hmm. And then they'd have to decide to come in when they thought they needed something, but they wouldn't know. So I don't have a problem with charging older clients, and maybe that's just me because I have older clients, but, and they have been clients for a long time, and we have a good, close, personal relationship, and I know that I take responsibility for many of the decisions that they make, and on their first point of call, if something happens and they need some help. Hmm. Um, and the only way I can do that is to charge them an ongoing fee. Hmm. So I don't have a problem with that. On the other hand, I've got to look at what is the, 
what is the quantum of that fee? Mm. I'm charging someone 15 grand a year for that. I think that's too expensive. If I'm charging them you know, four or five grand a year on a one or one and a half million overall portfolio of wealth, I think, I think that's reasonable. You know, so it's, it's, quantum is as much as anything else. Yeah, I sure. No problem with charging an ongoing fee in this situation. It's probably hard to hard to price that as well. I mean, you know, unless you're thinking about the amount of time you spend or you, you just did it based on, you know, their assets um, as well. But um, I, think it's, I think it's more based on what you decide in the practice is a minimum client fee or an average client fee sure. to charge in the practice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Tra- Tracy, any thoughts on this one? I love the from chaos to calm. I have to say that's, that's <laughs> great. But um, look, I, I think Paul's right. It's about the specifics of the situation as to you know how much the, the portfolio is worth and, and the, the, what kind of um, stewardship you have over the, over their uh, their financial situation. And and I think um, that that role of, of a financial advisor as a steward that's looking after the best interests of their clients is something that should be valued. Um, I don't think it's got zero value um, at, because I know that, Paul, if these were your clients and there was a change in the regulatory environment or there was a change in the context that it impacted on their on their portfolio, you would actually take proactive action for them because you, you're acting as a steward of, of their financial situation. So, so I don't think that looking up for people in this way is, is zero fee, zero cost. I've got a, you know, for a specific to the situation, we've had a for what's a reasonable fee. Um, and again, I come back to the point I made earlier, being transparent, being open and saying, you know, this is the fee that I'm charging, this is the kind of um, relationship you're getting for that fee. Um, so it's not just about tasks, it's also about relationship and responsibility. And I think that those things have a value. Yeah. Let's think a bit more kind of existential about this. It's clear that this um, individual feels that, you know, they've, they've thought one way for a while and now they're thinking, well, actually second-guessing themselves, you know, and that could have to do with the current regulatory environment and and some of the obligations of the codes of ethics. Um, do you feel, Paul, um, at all in your practice that you are sometimes put in two minds about situations given kind of some of the externalities we're talking about? We talked, we talked earlier about the interplay between Corporations Act being around financial products hmm. and, and everything else. And I'll, I'll give an example. We've got someone who's getting older who is driving an old car and the discussion for, for me to them, and I'm the only person who had this discussion with them, is that if you're going to keep driving, we need to buy you a new car, right? Because you, you're driving old cars, not got any of the safety features, and you're getting old now. Hmm. Now, I, I'm I've got this 20-year-old car, it's fine. No, it's not fine. So having that discussion, often we become that trusted advisor in this relationship that that we're the only ones in the family. I, I've had family members say, can you tell Dad to stop driving um, because he won't listen to us. He want, they want me to take that role, that, that family counsellor. <laughs> kind of role, which has nothing to do with finance. It's mm. everything to do with the relationship we've built over years as a trusted advisor. And um, and this, this, this falls completely outside corporations. Yeah. There's well, no product there. You know? What it shows me, though, is that there's, the advisor is probably second-guessing themselves a little bit. I, I agree. I, mm. I think this guy is good on him for thinking, good on him for second-guessing. There's nothing wrong with second-guessing. It's a great thing. But I, I'd be happy for the to conclusion. I do provide a valuable, valuable service to these clients and that justifies me paying a fee, I might review the fee. And maybe it's not as much as it was 10 years ago, but but I think you, you, you need to 
you know, these, these clients have been with you for a long time and we've had clients for more than 20 years now. You know, you, you, you're embedded into their life. Yeah. The other interesting aspect I find about this is do you kind of amortise some work that you do um, over a period? For instance, if you're putting in quite a lot of work, do you always charge that, um, you know, the, 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 the fee that perhaps, you know, inverted commas you should or do, are you happy to kind of keep the longer-term relationship as well? Because I think that thinking comes into this as well. Yeah, we don't adjust the fee. We have a flat fee that we okay. charge on. Okay. It's individually determined based on the circumstances, but we have a flat so fee. Matter, no matter what amount of time you spend on a situation? Depends. We, we have an idea of what we're going to spend on, on average, and there, but there's always things pop up. You know, so, you know, mum's going to go into aged care, you know, like, I need help with that. Okay, well, we'll help you with that. There might be 10 hours work. We don't charge extra for that. You know, we, we have a kind of... Uh, a whole of client view. You pay us the fee, you get the money. There'll be a period of time where we don't do much for you and periods period of time we do a lot for you. If I start to differentiate and I said, oh, by the way, this is going to cost you $4,000, that, that second guess is a decision. You know, it, it's like why people don't get their tax returns done on time or why they put off seeing a lawyer. Uh, why they don't go to doctors sometimes is because they don't know how much it's going to cost and they have a fear. Dentist, classic, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't people go to dentists? I worry it's going to cost me $3,000. If, if I char- if a dentist charged me 500 bucks a year, whether I went or didn't, I'd go every year, right? I'd go every year, no problem. But if I go once every three years, it costs me $5,000, I'll go once every five years. So we we average it out. We just say swings and roundabouts, you know? Okay. That's how we operate. Look, um, I think that's been a, a really great conversation. I think we touched on quite a lot of areas there. So um, I thank you very much, Paul and Tracy. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having this great discussion. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.